It's week 11. It's 76 days until the French Open, and this is the Grey Zone. How's it going, Al? Hey, Zach. How are you? I am doing fine. That's Despite great. our scheduling challenges, we made it uh, We made it here. We did. Whoever thought daylight savings was a good idea? Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Al, staunch opponent. That should be the first entry in, in today's list of things that we think are BS. Is yeah. uh, Al is coming out against daylight savings. Which you heard it here first. Not not a totally... if, if you hear a cat meowing in the background, it's just Toby, who is very, very handsome, but also very hungry. So I apologize in advance if you hear a couple of meows. That's fair. I mean, if you hear me making any noises, it's because I'm hungry, too. So makes sense. Could happen. Makes Things sense. that we think are BS. I'll, I'll get you started with something and we'll see how well I articulate my argument here. Um, you know, every now and then I every now and then I feel a little self-conscious about, uh, you know, putting stuff on a podcast because I'm firmly convinced that I still don't really know much of anything about coaching tennis. Um, so who am I, to, I jump in to... and just say that I'm right there with you? And I think we try to outline <laughs> that every week. That's like we, just... we do. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And so I sometimes think, you know, who am I to tell people? But um, but if there was any doubt in, in anyone's mind about whether or not I think I know everything, then my my shoddy uh, argument or explanation here will will reveal the truth. But there's a there's a movement um, that's gaining more and more popularity, at least online and in various coaching circles um that goes by a couple different names i'm sure there's distinctions i apologize there's some things that i'm up to date with the literature on and this isn't one of them but um often referred to as representative learning design or constraints-led approach or mm. non-linear pedagogy have you come sure. across any of those terms uh, you know so mike i the coach three after me got really big into constraint-led coaching and mine did mm -hmm. not um mm -hmm. so i'm actually not i mean i'm familiar with it but i'm not i haven't been trained on any of that is what i should say yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's, it's a tricky one. It's a little bit like, you know, Louis, I think always got upset with like game-based approach in the sense that it just, it, people just took the terms and then used it to mean different, all sorts of different things. And yeah. I think that's probably what's going on with a lot of this stuff. There's, you know, there's certain, they mean certain things in academic circles and then they get twisted and they, they by, by practitioners and evangelists and, and they get used in different ways. And I'll be the, I'll be the first to, to come out and say um, that, I use constraints all the time. I mean, it's a critical part of coaching. And if we if we look at the first term, I use representative learning design. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the environment that we create has to be representative of the competition environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm big on that, big on using constraints. Do you mind um, just outlining for some, some people who might not know um, what, what you mean when you say constraints? Like what would yeah, be that's, yeah, that's that. Yeah, no, thanks for picking that up. I mean, it could mean, in my case anyway, it could mean a couple of things. One, it could mean, um, you know, it could mean a a physical, a physical constraint, a, a physical constraint on the task. And so sitting there and saying, okay, well, we're working on return a serve, and I'm going to constrain your backswing. I'm going to put something behind you so your racket can't, your racket can't uh, move backwards. So instead of just saying, hey, shorten your preparation, shorten your preparation, yeah. you 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 impose a constraint that then encourages them to 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 find the right solution. Uh, but it could also be a constraint in the rule. So you can say, okay, we're going to play points, but uh, you know, you can only hit, you can only hit one backhand in a row. So then it encourages them to, you're not directly saying, here's what you have to do, but you're imposing a rule that encourages them to find a solution. Okay. After I hit this back and I have to hit a forehand. So what am I going to do about it? So that's how I would, that's how I would uh, describe uh, using constraints in my coaching. Perfect. Um but there seems to be, and perhaps I'm just following the wrong people on, on social media, but there seems to be this idea more and more that if you just establish the right environment, uh, establish the constraints, the, the, the athlete will, will learn the right thing. To, they'll learn the right thing. They'll pick it up without you having to do anything. Right. Not, and it's not a lazy approach, but it's this idea that, that the solution that they will find on their own is better than the solution that you can give them. Right. And this idea, and there's this idea that I guess the argument is that if they find it on their own, it's explicit learning or, or sorry, implicit learning. So it'll stick with them more. It'll be yeah. more natural to them. It'll come out, you know, in pressure moments, they'll be able to rely on it as opposed to it went being more explicit and you telling them what to do. And then it's less natural and it doesn't come out in pressure moments and so on. Would you consider that to be guided discovery? Like, would you consider that to be in the same boat as like essentially guiding an athlete to discover things on their own? And I'm not trying to sidetrack you here. No, I think it's yeah. That's a that's a great term that 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 uh, that's been around for much longer. I think so, and I think it all depends on how you use it. But it's definitely in the same vein. Okay. And I think that, 
and I think this is this is what I'm getting at essentially is that I think that as I outlined at the start, I'm big on establishing constraints because I think you establish you establish a motivation for learning. Mm-hmm. You also establish um, cues that are realistic to the competitive environment so that players, it's more realistic to them and there's more likelihood that it'll transfer yeah. to the competitive environment. But at the same time, I think it's absolutely ludicrous to suggest that everyone, that they'll just pick it up on their own. And some people aren't suggesting this. So I don't want to, I don't want to create a, a fake a counter argument, but there's, I think sometimes there's this inclination to think that if we just set this up, then they'll pick it up on their own and that'll be fine. And there's two issues with that. One is that some people just simply won't pick it up on their own. Mm-hmm. The second, maybe there's three issues. That's one because they're not athletic enough or they just can't figure it out. And then they just get frustrated. And of course you adjust the task and so on. But the other issue, the second potential issue is that they'll find an inefficient, either short-term or long-term, an inefficient solution. Yeah. Right. So they'll, you know, you, you, cause you, you can never set up the perfect constraint. And so you set something up, you say, okay, I want them to hit the ball yeah. into this spot by using this. And then they find some solution that actually won't help them in competition right. or won't help them in the long run. Yeah. And then the third possible downside, of course, is that you waste time. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the one that uh, maybe I'm, I'm open to being convinced of, but if it's going to take my, if it's going to take my player uh, 200 reps, you know, in this particular, I've established a constraint. It's going to take them 200 reps to, to figure out on their own what the optimal solution is. Yeah. Why don't I introduce that after the first 25 reps and say, hey, give this a shot and oh, then I see what it. happens. Uh, there's an argument that, okay, they, you know, they, if they figure it out on their own, they're more motivated. And as I said, it sticks better. And then maybe they're more athletic later on. But I just, I have, haven't seen anything that to buy into it. And especially since, I think a lot of this literature, first of all, is not, there's, there's not a lot of, I mean, it's hard to do, but there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials to say like, okay, we took one group and we coached them this way, one group, we coached them this way. I think it's a lot of like, we experimented with this and this is what people said a lot more uh, qualitative research. Yeah. And then also a lot of it is happening in the domain of soccer for whatever reason. And, and that's all well and good, but I can't stress enough how technical of a sport tennis is. It's incredibly technical. And so in a sport that is more, I would argue that soccer is more dependent on tactics and decision-making, not that tennis isn't tactical, but tennis is, that's why I think tennis is more complex than soccer. Sorry. But like tennis has just as much technical as it does tactical, whereas soccer is more tactical than technical. I would argue from someone who doesn't know a ton about soccer. So I apologize, but like in, in contexts that are more tactical, then I can understand it. Right. Yeah. Because you're teaching them to observe and to problem solve and figure okay. things I'm out a, that I understand. I'm but when we're talking more now, so you're when is, we're, is, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, but when we're talking about developing technical skills, um, and even in some cases tactical, but certainly when we're talking about developing technical skills, um, I think it's generally speaking more efficient to put them in an environment, put them in the, in the correct environment, establish a constraint. Mm-hmm. And if they can't do it, there's no harm in jumping in and providing some explicit direction as opposed to just letting them flail. Yeah, I can't disagree there. And I think where you brought it home and we'd both agree that the, the tactics will always precede the technique, right? It's always the tactic mm-hmm. first, which you kind of you kind of outlined in there. But yeah, specifically when it's like, I think that guided discovery thing is much more impactful in just a tactical situation. Like sooner or later, if mm-hmm. there's a tactical situation, you set up with a constraint. Well, it's like, well, sooner or later, the player is going to find a way to get said tactic done, Right. Yeah, it's just a reflection of what I'm seeing online. But I think there's there's also the suggestion that, you know, if you do any sort of drilling that is removed. So the example I'll, 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 the example that I'll give, I saw this online, was some kids were practicing, you know, some sort of passing technique. This is soccer. And they were kicking against a wall. And there was, you know, 10 kids, whatever. And they were kicking against a wall. And I guess the goal is to kick it as straight as possible. And it comes back to you, whatever. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, like, and people were making fun and go, ah, oh, like, they're going to be great at the wall section when they play their game on Saturday. And it's like, no, of course it's not realistic. Right. But could it be the most, the most efficient way to get repetitions on this particular skill? And then you integrate it into, you you know, you open up the skill, you add some perception, you add some decision-making, you integrate it into a more realistic environment. Like, is that not at all possible? It just seems like there's this, there has been this shift. And I think it's also happening in tennis because I hear people talking about it, this shift towards everything has to be, open there's we can't work on things closed we can't work on things isolated 
um, this idea that the, the, the kids are geniuses and they're going to figure out on their own, even in a tactical sense, you, if we go back to my constraint, the example that I gave and say, oh, you can only hit one back end in a row. You know, my thinking there is like, okay, the player, the player hits the back end. I've got to make sure, you know, my, my players got to make sure that their back end is really effective. So they've got to be thinking about when do I go down the line? When do I go cross? How do I stretch the opponent? Where do I recover? It's just as likely that the kid could go, all right, well, I'm just going to hit a drop shot every time I get a back end. Cause then, then I can pretty much guarantee I'll hit a forehand on the next ball. Right. right. Like, that's like that's, or, or I'll just slap it so that I, you know, so that I have a chance and that they don't get it back. Like they could find that solution as well. And yeah. if they're playing an opponent who can't handle that, or if they're particularly good at drop shots or whatever, then they're going to win. And so it's yeah. like, Hey, that that's shitty coaching. Like you didn't accomplish the the, the goal there. And of course yeah, it's no, part no, of the no. job. You, you adapt and you adjust to things that don't work, but like this idea that we can impose constraints and, and they will always find the right solution is ridiculous because I mean, why don't we take that to school then? Who needs teachers? You know, just like, you know, you know have yeah. kids show up at work and, and they'll learn what to do. It's like, no, there's a reason we have teachers and mentors and coaches is to provide a level of information and to develop skills. Um, but it's to provide expertise. And sometimes you need to be guided. It's to, it's to uh, accelerate the learning process, right? We talk yeah. about it all the time, especially in Canada, it's to accelerate the learning process. If they could do it on their own, then we would be out of a job. And of course, I know, once again, the flaw in that argument, of course, is that in this case, the, the coach is not doing nothing. The coach is establishing the environment. But I still, right. I'm still not convinced that, that uh, as always, it's just about, it's just, it's the gray zone. Fuck, it, it just keeps coming. It keeps coming Everybody up. drink. Yeah, yeah, but uh -huh. that's it, exactly what it is. It's like, it's just, I'm against either extreme. That's what it comes down to. I just think, let's not, let's not go from one extreme to the other we go every you know everyone's too closed okay now let's go completely open no come on let's let's find something in the middle yeah that's one so, of my worst one of my worst articulated points ever but i actually don't think so no I, I think i butchered something kind of in the middle there but i think <laughs> one, one point i'll make and then i'm gonna ask you a question about it but the the sell to your athlete of why you're doing it is very very important my yeah. question for you with this stuff then is like hey what's we don't want to wait 200 balls for um, just to let an athlete figure it out or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, sometimes we can help them out sooner. But for you as a coach, how do you determine how long has been enough time to let them figure it out? Like, how do you know when you should be jumping into attempt to accelerate the learning, as you said? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question because there's definitely, I'm always engaging in that. Like I'm always in that moment, whenever we're working on something, I'm always looking and going, you know, okay, what's, how successful are they? If they're, you know, if they're good enough, it's like, is it, so pardon me, if they're, if they're successful, it's like, is it good enough that I can raise the challenge level? If they're failing, it's like, okay, are they trying the right thing? Are they getting better at it? How much more time do I give them? I'm always going through that debate in my head. I think for me, it would be a couple of things. I mean, if they're, if I can see them changing stuff, that's mm -hmm. one thing. I think you let them keep going. I think if they're doing the right thing, but still missing, mm -hmm. um, I think you you keep it going, right. right? Because it takes some time just to get the coordination. You can do everything perfect, but just be a little miscoordinated, a little miss the timing, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, keep it going. And if they're and if they're still struggling for whatever reason, I'd I would say maybe give it twenty reps, but. At the same time, it's also context dependent. There's lots of times where there's a couple of things. One is I'll find that players will get better, get better. Like throughout a just, you know, a, you know, the 10, 15 minute window that you're working on something, mm -hmm. they'll get better and it'll look really solid. And then I've found in the past that I go past the point of it being good. And then the, the you know, diminishing returns and then performance yeah. actually starts to suffer. And so I try and find that sweet spot where, okay, they've, they've got it. And then I let them get it for a few more times, try and get as many good reps as you can. And then just when I think like, okay, it's going to fall off the cliff here, we stop and we move on to something else. Yeah. That's impactful um, too. And that's, and then, and then that's the other thing is sometimes I, I know like if they're just not getting it, it could be because they're tired. It could be because we've done too many reps of it. Uh, you know, it's going to be better tomorrow. And so many times you, they just sleep and then it, it, they come back the next day and it's already better. Yeah. And there's tons of, there's tons of science on that, right. On the, on, on motor learning and, and rest and regeneration and all the neural pathways and things like that. So actually for, not... for one pod, that'd be a really interesting conversation. Cause like I'm, I'm a staunch believer in certain things to do with that. And that's not a conversation for right now, but I just think um, it's really, really important. And I'm just going to yeah. jump in a quick, quick story, but I'm a massive NBA fan. 
and in the offseason in NBA, all the time you hear about all these players that are completely technically changing their shot and they're going to come back and then be a great three-point shooter, and a great free throw shooter. And it's like, oh, they're taking 10,000 shots a day. They're out. They work so hard. They take 10,000 shots a day and they come back and nothing's different at all. And it's like, yeah. I, and, and there's, this is a precursor to a conversation that you and I will have of just like, I, it, it's shocking to me that a billion dollar industry like the NBA, they don't have people around that understand how learning works enough to change technique. It's starting though. It's starting. I follow yeah. at least one person, if not two on social media who are like motor skills people with NBA teams. Well, it, interesting. Well, that'll, that'll help the quality of the game for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And one yeah. thing, I was thinking this while you were chatting as well, but, and it, maybe it's related, maybe it's not, but I find what's been happening a lot in, in our groups lately is we're, we're in a bit of a comp phase. So we're doing a lot of points. And um, sometimes even a point, like a player will, will not execute something and they'll sort of, they'll say out loud to themselves what the correction is, but they'll say it, they'll say it out loud as I'm preparing to tell them the same feedback. Mm. So I find what I'm trying to be very cognizant of, of lately is like, if one of my players misses and starts giving themselves the correct feedback, then I should just shut up. Yep. You know, I'm a big believer in that. But as I've big, expressed yeah. many times, I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so it's difficult. It's not easy for me to do it. But no, um, but that's uh, no, I completely agree. But yeah. that yeah. is the first thing that I think is a little bit BS. I like it. On to, Great. On to you. Okay. Mine is a little bit more simple, but um, what I see a lot of it at high level coaching or some, okay, what I don't see a lot of at high level coaching is a lot of work that's done uh, in the mini tennis court or in the short court. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even, even when players are very, very established and top hundred ICF rankings or whatever, or pros, there are so many skills that are not being taught in the mini court. And I think if those are neglected and neglected and neglected, it's very, very difficult for, for players, even pros to get those skills, unless they invest a lot of time in certain mini or short court things. And so when some coaches have the mindset that like, they don't believe in mini tennis or they don't believe mm-hmm. in like short court stuff. I'm just so against that. And I'm not suggesting it's maybe a bit different because I'm not suggesting it's bullshit to not think that, but I think sometimes it's much easier for athletes to attain skills in a mini tennis environment or a short court environment that are then much easier to translate into a full court into, or into uh, like a, a meaningful situation. So that is my quick synopsis. Well, just showing off how you can, uh, articulate things better than i can um I don't can you give an example this means is that right is that <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. give me an example um okay so the one big one i find is uh amplitude on size of volleys okay um so that's a massive one where it's like it's so easy to get somebody to have the appropriate amplitude and volleys if you just do a lot of mini kind of stuff and a lot of short court stuff so that's one what do you mean by short court stuff just just so for, like, for the people for the people at home yeah so sort of service line to service line or what a lot of people would refer to as mini tennis mm-hmm. um we do a heck of a lot of like a volleyer volleying to somebody who's on the service line mm-hmm. um, in a point situation or rallying or no in a lot of cooperative rally situation and it's usually it's almost always at the very start of practice like once the physicals okay. are done and everything else yeah uh, for two main reasons again where it's like it's it's a constraint in some sense, right, Zach? Where like you can't mm-hmm. have these massive size swings and amplitudes of volleys because then you're not going to be able to uh, like exchange with the person who's on the service line. And to be specific, we usually ask like the volleyer has to make their ball land between um, the ground stroker who's on the service line and the net, mm-hmm. right? So they're yeah. trying to be cooperative that way. So one thing is like we fix a lot of potential red flags with volleying stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, very easy to get lots of repetition on ensuring correct grips at, at, at any like any agent level. Yep. And the last one, which I think is anecdotal, but when I see a lot of high level tennis, it is shocking to me how few players have feel with their volleys where they can decrease the speed of the ball as a volleyer. And now we we get into a little bit of thing when we do the mini tennis ones where it's like the net player or the volleyer is receiving a slow pace ball and still taking pace off the slow pace ball. So eventually like anything else, it progresses to the point where we send balls that are at a higher tempo to the net player so they can get even better at decreasing the speed of the ball. But as a, as a rambling point, my feeling on most, most attacking things is like, then when you get to a tactical situation where somebody's actually attacking and coming forward, it's like, well, the attack is usually going to have some semblance of speed and that speed is going to cause the ball to go at some level of depth in the court. Right. 
But what I see a lot of is like people that attack with depth and speed and their first volley, they, they send it with depth and speed. And like, you know, the geometry of the court where it's like, to me, it's much more common that if I'm going to attack with speed, it's more likely. And it's not always the case, but the next volley would be, would usually not have speed and not have depth. Yep. Yep. Um, and statistically, I'm sure you could find, you could make that argument looking at a lot of data from ATP and WTA stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if it's really like things I think are BS, but I guess I would encourage a lot more pros to do a lot more stuff in the mini tennis court. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, on the volley point, I mean, uh, for sure, like my players know, I talk all the time about, uh, first of all, you know, the most important ball control in a volley is the height, but then also like how how essential it is to be able to volley short rather than volley uh-huh. deep is definitely definitely key um but it's interesting but it's interesting your point because like an eagle eagle eared listener would could pick up on some contradictions here in a sense between the two of us because uh part of your argument here is that you're doing the work in the mini tennis you know like you said it's establishing a constraint and and mm-hmm. part of the argument is that that some some good technical work will will get done throughout throughout this task which i don't yeah. disagree with for the record but i think right. if someone if someone had a crappy grip or was still too firm in their hand, I suspect you would jump in and say, Hey, try and, you know, try and loosen up your fingers here, loosen up your grip. And Hey, I was trying to adjust that grip. I think you would still step in rather than just say, Oh, set up the task. Off we go. And for that, and for that matter, you wouldn't just do the mini tennis work and then put them into points and expect them to be able to hit good drop balls. For sure. For sure. And you're right. I would intervene a lot and I would probably coach a lot in that situation as well. If somebody didn't have the foundation to do it. Right. And there's, and there's some opening up process where you would, you know, you would uh, develop things if you were really specifically working on on drop volleys or shorter volleys. You would maybe do some work there, but then also do some feeding or introduce some decision making or whatever, and or yep. you know, uh, you know, more specific work on faster balls, whatever. Sure. Anyway, and to be over specific um, too, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily coach, but I would certainly ask a lot of questions because if I don't say that, then Ben Armstrong will uh, <laughs> run his car through my house. So that's uh... no, Benny. I love um, you. I love you, Benny. I'm messing with you, my man, but. But but back to the to the mini tennis thing. I no, I I, I completely completely agree. Yep. Me as a player as well, and I didn't play at a super high level, but like I love playing two or three minutes of mini tennis before I go back to the baseline and playing a match. Like I right. just think like there's relaxation and feel stuff that you get. So and I, I think most almost okay, every player at our club, if we if we're done our physical say, okay, start hitting. Every play player at our club starts playing mini tennis before they go right back to the baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now there's some people that just go straight back to the baseline and it depends on a lot of things, but I don't know. I just think it's like, um, it feels yeah. good for me as a player. And I think for all of our players, it, they, they would agree that they just like to get a little bit of a feel from short in the court before they go anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think if you watch any pros practice, they almost never do many tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Almost never. They go straight back, but there's yep. two things to that. The first is, you know, the quality for the most part, for the majority, the quality of their physical warm-up, right? Is yeah. they're already they're already sweating, yeah. they're already fully activated, muscles activated, they're mobile, they're flex, they're they're flexible, they're they're ready to go. The other thing is that for a lot of the pros, the tempo at from the baseline for them when they're warming up, you know, that is their equivalent of mini tennis. It's super slow mo the, the tempo that they start at for them is super slow motion. Whereas for the plebs like you and me to go straight back to the baseline is like, all right, it's a little bit faster requires. And so I, Lord knows I certainly don't warm up, but um, so I think there's a little bit of that. It's like for them, that is their mini tennis, super slow tempo right up the middle. Like there's no intensity, you know, they're fully warmed up. That is the equivalent of their mini tennis. And then they start hitting and then they start hitting at a higher tempo and they get into a groove and the intensity picks up. Yep. Whereas a lot of people, juniors who go straight back, they might not even have the control necessarily to maintain a rally from the baseline without increasing the intensity or the speed, because that takes right. some skill and coordination. Yeah. Um. So that's, so that's one thing to think about, but I also think, you know, my pet peeve is when people do skills work in the boxes and it's only slice stuff. Right. And that's my pet peeve. Of course I think it's good, mm-hmm. but when I do stuff in the boxes because I do just like you, I do a lot of stuff with top spin in the boxes. Yeah. Cause I think that, you know, that once again, establishes a constraint that encourages people or, or it establishes an environment where they are rewarded for accelerating and for having top spin and for, and for 
yeah, having good good racket speed and using the whole the whole court and the angles of the court. And yeah. I also do a lot of stuff with volleys in the boxes mm-hmm. for the exact same reason that you outlined, because you can work on a lot of different feelings. I yeah. think just playing in the boxes and just working on um, slices, whether it's backhand or forehand, yep. I think it's okay. And especially if you're dealing with younger kids and you're working on slice technique and, and establishing some, some fundamentals for the backhand slice, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But actually, otherwise, I actually think it's not the best use of time. I think, of course, you can do it every now and then and work on a little bit of touch. But I actually think it's so rare that you're going to be playing a slice from inside the service boxes. You might be playing a drop shot. You might be returning a drop shot. Okay. Doesn't happen that often, though. I think it's more beneficial. Once again, we're talking for players who have these sort of technical skills already established yeah. and yeah. need need improvement. But like, I think it's more beneficial to do slice work from the baseline, especially if we're talking backhand slice. Mm-hmm. If we're talking forehand slice work. I don't think I have nothing against players hitting forehand slices in certain situations, but I don't think there's a ton of value in like practicing it. I think it's yeah. much more beneficial to practice the topspin stuff and the volley stuff, even if they're not going to be necessarily playing those shots from or in the service boxes. I think it's developing technical skills um that you'll use so that's my little that's that's my little thing which i think is quite in line with what you said but that's my little thing is like use those work in the boxes but don't just play touch games hit play with topspin play with volleys play yeah you can hit as hard as you can but it has to be in the box like develop some of those skills rather than just playing this you know the Djokovic game or playing little touch angle games which develop your feel but realistically don't develop much else yeah for sure and as you said too, it's like if you, if you have an under ten group or like some under twelve groups, they they might do a lot of slice game because they might need the repetition on just like the basic fundamentals of yep. slicing even from from short. But I have two other points while while you were talking just about mini mini court stuff because you mentioned like working on angling or whatever when you're playing playing in the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, one pet peeve, and I, I guess I'm I'm skipping ahead of you again, but one pet peeve of mine is you see so many videos online. And specifically, like, hey, there's some USTA videos I've seen and some IMG videos, which are just awful, where the warm up <laughs> is, you know, the one where it's like, okay, there's a cone that's like inches away from the net. And then on the other end, there's a cone up inches away from the net. And they rally sharp angle forehands, forehand to forehand, like really close to the net. You know that one? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it with the cones, but uh, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But the, the whole idea of people like, oh, yeah, we're working on angles. But you look at the players <laughs> and the angle, the, the players' bodies are facing each other. Right. So like, no, you're not working on angles. You're you're hitting you're hitting straight ahead. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're working on direction. You're working on yeah. hitting the ball straight. <laughs> yeah. So that's one one beef where like all they would have to do is just change like stand facing forward and now you're working on angles. That's a great the, point. The second point of this is when people do like cross court exchanges in the mini court. And so like you and I are gonna rally backhand to backhand cross court to work mm-hmm. on our cross court, but the outcome that the coach outlines is like even though we're on the service line is that you want, you bring your ball to the single sideline and I bring my ball to the single sideline. And it's tough to, it's tough to say this stuff without actually outlining it. But a lot of time yeah. when coaches think they're working on a strong, like the feeling of a strong cross court in the mini court, they're actually mm-hmm. working on an angle cross court. And that's right. very, very different. Where like, yeah. if you, as you know, if you were to draw a line from baseline to baseline on the cross court, um, a cross court would essentially would kind of move through the center of, the one side of the service box. Yeah. So if you're warming yeah. it up in mini tennis, it's actually not much of an angle at all. But that same that same distance when you go back baseline to baseline is the actual strong cross court. And yeah. if anybody understood any of what I just said, I will send you a prize because <laughs> it's so tough to say that stuff without like actually using a visual. Yeah. But yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, but I I got you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and if they didn't understand, fuck them. That's you know it is what it is. Yeah. But no, I'm Dorks. kidding. But exactly. Yeah. And but and just to add on to that, just a side note, but like uh, the other thing that drives me nuts is when kids have to hit cross court. I it doesn't totally drive me nuts, but I think it's something to think about is when kids have to hit cross court in mini tennis, and coaches impose the recovery, mm. and they also impose the direction of the cross court, and so it's like the cross court has to be good, and you have to recover, and so then the kids are running around like headless chickens. Yeah. And they're just like scrambling back and forth or when they have to run around the cone and they're like scrambling around the cone and then barely getting the ball back and then scrambling again and like, or they're after touching the line. And like, of course, when they're doing that, okay, the argument is they're not doing it well and we're working on when they do it well and then they can control it. But I think sometimes like, let's, let's forget about the recovery for a second. Let's, yeah. can we get them to control the ball? 
Like there's well a skill said. there as well. And of yeah. course, should they have a focus and athletic look? Yes. You can always demand a focus and athletic look, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. can they be athletic, ready position on their toes? They're moving, they're, they're low and athletic. Yes, 100%. But is it the end of the world if they're not having a realistic recovery and they just stand there and hit the ball back and forth? No, yeah. you're, you're developing technical skills. You're developing some coordination. You're developing the timing, the feeling of hitting cross court. Maybe we get that because th at the end of the day, those are going to be better repetitions than if the kids are just running around hitting with absolute shit technique and just barely scraping the ball back and forth. And just, I mean, like there's no value in that. So of course yeah. it's a fine, it's a fine line, but that's just something that I remember. I was, was going to say I've seen, but of course I'm also done. This is like a PTSD from my past, uh, well, past coaching in, 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 in a past life. So it's like, I've yeah. been there, done that. Then it's just, you look at it, you just go like, this is so ugly. Like, and then it just, they're not learning to hit cross court. They're just learning to chase balls. It's a good defensive drill is what it is. Sure. And just to tune in, if, you, if you're tuning in just now, welcome to the gray zone where we talk about mini tennis. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a, it's the same. And to big, piggyback on this, then then I'll I'll end this part of the conversation. But even when I was a lot younger, right away with players that maybe didn't have the skills needed to appropriately exchange a cross-court rally, I'd be demanding of the recovery right away because in a coaching course, they told me I had to be demanding on a recovery. And it's yeah. like, why the hell would my player recover if he can't if he can't exchange the ball without recovery yet? You know yeah. what I mean? So just the progressions yeah. of how, how we do think, well, I mean, that's, and again, I say that because I got that totally wrong for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, same, same. Anyway. Yeah. You're up. I got, uh, I got one more thing. And this is, this was spurred on from, I was having this discussion with, uh, with my colleague Magnus this week. And it just got me thinking, cause I think it's something that is maybe, um, under discussed or discussed at least in the wrong way. And it's a little bit tied into my first point. Um, but it's creativity. Uh -huh. And a lot of people talk about creativity. A lot of people value creativity. And certainly in tennis, I won't speak for other sports, but certainly in tennis, people value a lot of creativity. Talk about this player is so creative, or I want to encourage my players to be creative. There's a couple of things. The first thing is, I think that generally it's overrated. And that's not to say that so it's not funny. good. But I think people maybe in some cases assign too much value to it. That is to say that I don't think there's a ton of players who win, who are better than others because they're more creative. I don't think when Alcaraz hits a drop shot, I don't think that's being creative. That's just tennis. Um, when people hit good passing shots, that's not being creative. That's just skill. Uh, there's very few players who are inventing shots. You've got Bublik, you've got Kyrgios. you got maybe one or two others. Monfils back in the day. That's creative hitting a shot. That's no one, no one's ever hit before yeah. hitting a good shot. That's not creativity hitting a shot in an unexpected situation uh, is either incredible skill that like other people aren't good enough to hit in that situation. That's why it wasn't expected. It's or so it's dumb. Creative. No, or, or, or it's, it's either incredible skill or it's dumb for the most part. Right. Um, you know, I, I could argue maybe Federer's saber, maybe that was like creativity, but then again, the fact that it really hasn't been picked up would suggest that maybe it, it wasn't uh, exactly a high percentage play. It just worked for him in certain situations. But that that certainly was creativity. So that's number one is I think it's maybe slightly overvalued. But number two, and this is this is um, I think this is worth discussing, is the fact of the matter is, is that creativity and there's a lot of discussion on this within the realm of education, but creativity comes from background knowledge. You have to have background knowledge in order to be hmm, creative. If you look at scientific discoveries, if you look at people who came up with, with groundbreaking innovations, they were not completely removed from the field that their discovery was in. Sometimes they may have been on the outskirts of that field, but they had the background knowledge. No one, I cannot be creative with regards to coming up with a new way to solve, uh, you know, one of maths, one of a mathematics, uh, you know, unsolved problems. I don't have the necessary background knowledge. Someone right. will find a creative solution to solve one of these things, mm -hmm. but they're within that field. They have the background knowledge to be creative and 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 to connect the dots, to say, hey, I have this, this piece of knowledge. I have this piece of knowledge. What if I combine them? What if I use them in a slightly different way? They didn't right. just come out of nowhere and go, hey, I don't know. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing in tennis. You have to have the requisite base you know the fundamental skills yeah in other words you have to be able to hit all these certain shots and do these different things and, and tactical fundamentals as well i'm not just talking technique technique yep. you have to have these fundamental skills to then say 
okay, well, how can I combine what I already know about the sport to then be creative? Yeah. And so I think that sometimes coaches or, you know, coaches will put people in situations and say, yeah, I want to encourage them to be creative. And that just means I put them in a, a funky situation and see what they come up with. Uh, you know, I don't think there's a ton of value in that or players or people will talk about players or players will talk about themselves or others and go, yeah, yeah, yeah so creative. Uh, Interesting. I don't, you know, I don't think that's creativity. I think creativity in some, you know, I don't think there's a ton of room for creativity in tennis, to be honest, but I think when there is, it comes from taking things that already exist, skills that we already have and combining them, maybe applying them in new situations. Um, but I think this, this, emphasis or this value that's placed on players being creative or or trying to trying to build creativity in players i think is both slightly overvalued and um not being done in the right way yeah yeah i i totally agree um and now i have a follow-up question on that because i was was chatting with like our our staff had this conversation this week was kind of in line with creativity but in your experience at a very high level like a high itf atp or wta level how much variance do you think there actually is in tactics? By which I mean, and just to, to be a little bit more clear here, obviously the playing style, like people have different playing styles that we would agree, but in terms of like the nitty gritty of like what a player needs their ball to do in a certain situation or based on a specific phase of play, how much creativity do you think there actually is within each style style of play as it relates to what ball they're receiving? What do you mean? So I just mean... I think tennis at high levels is very, very, very simple. Mm. And I, I don't think if we were to ask players or if, if players like Novak or Fed, if they were to tell us what they're trying to do, I don't think their tactics are crazy. I think it's like, it's like, oh, I'm going to hit to their weakness a little bit. I'm going to wait, wait for a ball that I can move them on. Um, I'm going to make my ball rise. I'm going to try to get three points on my first serve. Like, I don't, I don't think people are going out there with these, going to your creative, creative point with these really creative tactics. It's really just like, this is what players are going to try to do. And the player that does it better is going to win. Yeah. I think that's a slightly different point, but I do generally agree. It, it, it is. No, it, it is. It, it is a, bit I, of a segue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. But I mean, I do, I, I do generally agree with you. I'm still a little bit undecided. You know, I, I I've, I've there's a lot of intelligent people who say like, yeah, you know, tennis is simple and, and, and tactics is, is quite basic and, and it makes a lot of sense, but there's, you're seeing all this analytics out there right now. And of course it could all be meaningless, but you're seeing a lot of uh, analytics that suggest that, okay, well, you know, you can anticipate this player is going to serve like this at 1530 and you're slightly more effective when you hit your kick serve on the deuce T than when you do this. So then you can start to, so little adjustments like that. Um, so there may be value in, 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 tactics in that sense i think that there's i think that they're making i think maybe a a more valuable skill or something that's more that's going on more is the adjustments that players are making mid-match i i think the the game plan going into a match i think for the most part is quite simple like you said i could be wrong i I hear stories of of, of, of analysts talking with players and having a whole plan on here's how you're going to return here's how you're going to serve here's what happens when you're up in the uh, up in the set and all that stuff so i hear stories like that of course it, it depends player to player but i think what's more valuable at least from our end is the what adjustments the players are making mid-match based on what is working and what isn't sure because i think there's a lot of that going on yep i do agree like you said i think a lot you know especially at the highest level when a lot of players have played each other and you're talking mm-hmm. in the top 15 like it comes a lot of it comes down to execution it's yep. like everyone knows, like you, like everyone knows when Federer plays Nadal, they know exactly how they're going to play against each other. For it sure. just comes down to who's going to execute on the day, yep. right? Yep. Yep. And so I think a lot of it does come down to execution. But I think when it's in the case of players who maybe don't know where each other's games as much or haven't played each other as much, I think perhaps more, um, more relevant are the adjustments that that players are making, right? And the only reason to bring that up is to suggest that like at very high levels, like I, to, to echo your thoughts, I just don't think there's as much creativity at high, high level tactics as yeah. uh, I maybe thought when I was younger, but again, I could, yeah. I could be wrong on that. 
No, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you on that. And I just, I conveniently, of course, I finished talking about my creativity thing. And then I remembered the initial conversation that spurred it on, which clarifies it much more. So I'll just clarify, like, when you, you know, look at someone like Sviatek, who's very skilled, um, or Medvedev, you know, and you see them hit these funky shots, sometimes funky techniques or whatever. I don't think that's them being creative in the point. I think they've worked on all these situations. Maybe they weren't working on that exact technique, but they've worked on all these situations. And so they know if I have to hit a short angle passing shot, I can do it. If I have to pick up a ball off my feet, I can do it. If I have to slide out and hit a backhand uh, lob, I can do it. They've worked on these situations. Man, maybe the vision wasn't specifically hit backhand lob, but it was defense out of the backhand corner or whatever, uh, or just passing shots in general. But like, They've worked on all these situations. They've mastered all these skills. And then those skills are coming to the forefront in the match. That's not them being creative in the middle of the match going, wow, look at, look at her creativity. How did she manage to put that ball back? That's so creative. No bullshit. If you put players on a court and you say, Hey, play points and be creative. They're not going to, they're they're not going to develop those skills. Those skills are developed through repetition and through practice. Now the repetition may have come in a live ball setting. It may have come from feeding. It may have come over the years from different things, but these are skills that the players have mastered that are then appearing because tennis is such an open sport and, and varied that they're appearing in point play, but yeah. they're not the players being creative in the moment and coming up with brand new solutions for the first time when they step onto the court. That's not what's yeah, happening. I was about to say the same thing. It's not like this is the first time they've ever tried this shot in this one specific moment on center court of Indian Wells, you know? No, exactly. But, uh, yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, All right. Speaking of creativity, um, I have a bone to bone to pick with change of rhythm. Ooh, interesting. And this actually, this I'm curious. You know, you you know, it's a it's a tennis nerd podcast when one guy says I have an issue with change of rhythm and the other guy goes, oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> after after 30 <laughs> minutes, mini mini tennis conversation. Um, <laughs> so this actually, this one might have been that one podcast where we tried to debate each other, where we tried to have opposing views on stuff. I and wonder failed, if this yeah. might actually would fall in this category. But um, and I'm gonna put you on the spot a bit, Zach. Yep. What would be the definition of in order to change rhythm? What first has to be established? <laughs> I feel like I'm walking into a trap. No, well, not, back, not. back, back when I did, back when I did all my coach education, uh, in order to change the rhythm, there has to be a rhythm. Yeah, there has to be an established rhythm. Well said. So yeah. I think that's utter bullshit. Ooh, interesting. So initially, I just want to get your thoughts on the statement of it. I guess I don't think you need to establish rhythm to change rhythm. My thought is, I think a lot of what we call change of rhythm is getting the opponent out of their strike zone. Fair. Okay. Yeah. And just to be clear too I, on the change of rhythm stuff. So for for those listening, um, I guess I kind of maybe I'm I'm debunking myself here and saying this, but let's say there's an average rally tempo or there's an average speed at which a point is being played. A change of rhythm would be anything that intentionally um delineates from that. So like uh, a slice to take the speed off the ball, uh, a ball played with more height, a ball played with increased speed. Uh, an increased spin in one direction or the other could could be something like that. Like that, that's the the synopsis of what a change of rhythm is. Is that fair? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think the words change, rhythm, and of are all used in a daily vocabulary without being in the world of tennis. So I don't <laughs> sure that needed to be. You want to do it again? So a change of rhythm is. <laughs> yeah, there we go. But yes, that's that that's fair. I think that's fair. But no, but I think like so that's my first thing is I think that a lot of what we call change of rhythm is actually just taking the the player out of their strike zone. So playing sure. playing a low short slice to make them hit from too far in front or from too low, um, or playing a, a higher spinnier ball to make them play from above their shoulders or to push them back. Um, yep. I think that's actually the true intention of those shots. It's not a change of rhythm, even though sometimes we call it change of rhythm. Otherwise, I think that. I don't know. I have to think about what you're saying because I think the the argument then is that if you establish the rhythm and then you change the rhythm, the argument is that you're sort of more in control. Whereas if they're, that's just my gut feeling, but it's like you're more, you know, you're ready for it. So it's not a, it's not a change of rhythm for you. It's a change of rhythm for the opponent. Whereas if the rhythm is different on every shot, then it's kind of, it's a change of rhythm for you as well. I don't know. That's kind of my gut feeling, yeah. but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Just in general, like, I think we have, as players or coaches or anybody who's hit a tennis ball, you have like an instinctive rhythm that you play at just by being a tennis player. So I think like if you and I went to go warm up for a match and the first ball I sent you, like my feed in was a, a, a first window slice that landed on the service line. 
A, that'd be kind of be a dick move. Like who, who the hell would start a rally like that? But you've seen enough tennis balls where it's like without hitting a tennis ball, that is a change of rhythm to what you were expecting. And no ball mm. has been established. Mm. And the other one that I was saying on this too, and we talked about this a little bit in the coaching course I was involved with recently, but it's like, um, let's say I have 130 mile an hour serve. And like throughout the whole first set, I'm bombing and bombing and bombing and bombing aces for days. TFC, we train to hit aces. Um, <laughs> so say we got to four all and I'm serving. Yep. And for the first serve that I play, I use a kicker to change the rhythm. Well, in that specific point or that game, there hasn't been a rhythm that it's been established. Like the rhythm has been established through the flow of everything that's been going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So that, that's sort of where, and it's it's one of these conversations that does it really matter or have any bearing on anything? No. However, you and I have said multiple times in these podcasts that definitions are very important to us because it's how we communicate. It's it's how we understand what each other are talking about. And yeah. And all yeah. That. No. No, I think you're I think you're spot on. I think it's really interesting. I also think um I also think for what it's worth that like change of rhythm is maybe the most overrated tactic. <laughs> same. If we're gonna if we're yeah, gonna same. go because I think like I think change of rhythm almost never wins you the point. I think yep. it can set you up with an easy ball, but if you don't have a weapon to take advantage of it, you're you're in trouble. It's for gonna sure. be very difficult. So I think like I think as a tactic, like if if anyone remembers all the tactic stuff that I put online, like I put it in the same category as all the others, but I, I do think of it as a little bit more overrated because it rarely, and especially at higher level, but even at lower levels, like it rarely wins you the point outright. It just might set you up with an easier ball that you can take control with, but yeah. Um, and, or yeah. over the course of a match, how often is the tactic of change of rhythm going to lead to you winning a, like a multitude of points? It's like, and it's like, what, the, you do it well, you get five extra points you're going to win. And that's a lot. And this is, yeah. Like, and this is the other thing is how often, does a rhythm get established in a, in a, in a tennis match? Yeah, Very I, rarely. I that often. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which I mean, that, like, a rallying a... conversation we had about like high level rallying stuff, right? It's like it happens, but it's not. Uh, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, already the majority of points, as we know, are short. But then yeah. on top of that, the majority of points, certainly at like a high ITF and certainly pro level, the majority of points are played in offense and defense. They're not, and, and obviously, you know, by extension, neutralizing and counterattacking and all that stuff. But there's very few points where you hit more than one shot in a row in a neutral phase yeah it just like just doesn't happen so you don't get that opportunity necessarily to change the rhythm but i think i think what you said is interesting because i think like one of the actually that maybe the highest levels of tactics and this is and this is um uh like a funny story but when i realized this is when i was like 20 and i'd been working with uh working with a kid who had who had previously won under 14 nationals and was playing high level itfs and stuff and we were we would practice and we would play the Djokovic game a ton and we would play like uh best of five sets up to 11 sort of thing yeah um is it called the Djokovic game in Canada because I feel like that's I think all it is. I think it's the it is. only thing it's called in Europe so I've sort of gotten used to it but I, for me it used to be ping pong tennis okay that's what it, that's what it used to be called but um anyway but the, but the the game where you where you hit the ball onto your side of the court first and and instead of the and then yeah. and then the other person has to volley it down and so on and so forth yeah. and we would play like best of five up to 11 and you you get into these, you know, it's a small court, simple rules. So you, there's only so many situations you get into. Essentially, it's like you get into either short backhand, deep backhand or short forehand, deep forehand. Mm-hmm. And the options are essentially, once again, to go deep into either corner or to go short into either corner. And we obviously played so much that we sort of learned what each other's tendencies were. Mm-hmm. And so then it it wasn't, I wouldn't necessarily anticipate his shot selection. I would anticipate what he was going to anticipate from me. Mm-hmm. And so it was the element of surprise, essentially, where I would yeah. be anticipating, uh, you know what, I've done short backhand here three times now, and it worked two of them. So it's a good tactic, but he's expecting it. So now I'm going to go deep forehand. Yeah. And I, and I would just, and I would, and so you'd be mixing up and then he would be doing the same thing to me. I'd be anticipating the short cross because he'd done it every time. And then all of a sudden he goes line. I'm like, oh, crap. So like, I actually think that happens at a high level of tennis in some situations, just like you outlined, you outlined perfectly. You're going, you've been bombing serves, bombing serves, bombing serves. Clearly you can't return for shit at TSE because you should have broken, but it's for all anyway. So <laughs> you're, you're bombing serves and then you throw in the kick. I think that's a perfect example by, you know, you've established a, a, a rhythm or a pattern, let's call it. And the guy is expecting this big serve. And then, and then you, and then you mix it up and you, and you surprise them. But I think it's, I think, yeah. So I think the element of surprise is certainly something that I don't coach enough, but I think that's very valuable. Same, same thing with, you know, 
you've been coming to the net every time and volleying cross court, volleying cross court. And then you come in one time and you volley down the line and the guys and just keep the guy guessing. Cause he started to anticipate. Like, I think that's, um, I think that's very valuable. I can't even remember what you're talking about, but I, no, no, <laughs> I think you get it, but I not change the rhythm. That's what it was. So I, I think, yeah. Think, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think variation is there. And I, I think it was probably subconscious, but you said change a pattern mm. and like, okay, what, what if we looked at change of pattern as being more of the prevalent thing than a change of rhythm? And that's not for this conversation, but like I wrote down change of pattern because this week I, I'm just going to think a lot about like, okay, like how would you break down change of pattern? And it happens all the time, right? But is that, again, is that more prevalent than whatever else? But the last thing that I will say on the change of rhythm stuff, unless you have anything else to add, but I also understand that within the realm of coaching certification, it is a more challenging examination if you're, <laughs> if, uh, if you're forcing the players to first establish a rhythm before the rhythm's changed. So I also understand there's probably, there's a coaching course element to it um just then i feel like but yeah. i get sued by tennis canada i should outline that <laughs> that, that'd be a, a heck of a news story to wake up to i'd love that yeah. um yeah good stuff do you know you know robert lansdorp yeah you know tracy austin sued him at one point no way <laughs> yeah, i've been i've been, re- been reading up on a lot of coaches we'll talk about this for another episode but i've been reading up on a lot of coaches and like coaching styles and leadership styles which maybe we can talk about now i don't know but uh was reading something about him and it was just mentioned in passing i couldn't find much about it but i found at least one other mention of it and she talks great about him now so like it's not you know it wasn't but there was some bad blood at one point and she sued him which is like awesome yeah i mean it goes to show how insanely uh you know he's a gruff gruff tough dude yeah yeah but yeah uh, for sure for sure yeah Um, quick uh top five tennis coaches of all time go uh, Zach Olant, Alistair Miller, in that order. Uh, no, it's too tough, man. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I can't. I'm like, gonna, I'm sorry, hold on. I'm going to jump in. It doesn't bug me much, but I feel like I might as well set the record straight. This is the public Olin. public forum. Olin. Sorry. We're going to go with Olin, because it is Swedish. And I only okay. bring it up not to pick on you, but because John Kajerski was on Bogdan's podcast, which Al was Bogdan. also on. I highly recommend anyone go check it out. Just go on YouTube, Bogdan Grigorenko. Good luck spelling it, but you'll find it. And and Al's episode is great. John's episode is great. I also listened to Mike Hall's episode. Really good chats. Um, and John, uh, you know, got my check and said some very nice things about me, but he also said Olé, which makes sense because, of course, born in Montreal, but it's Olin because it's Swedish. Olin. Anyway, go on. Top okay, five, gonna, uh, top five I'm coaches of all time tennis. I'm going to do better. I just want you to know that. I'm going to do better with your last name and, yeah, and the pronunciation uh, of your academy as well. It, uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, what, I, not to pull a Zach on you and not answer a question, but I really don't think I can answer that. I really, I don't think I can answer that's that. Five folks of all time. Yeah, but that's if fair. you have something, if you have some thoughts, no, I'm but I'm, I'm minutes. doing, I'm doing a sort of a study analysis, some research. So you can think about it. You can come back to me on the next episode. I'll have my okay. five. You have your five, and we'll, we'll think about it. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is a good time or not, but I, I we did you said on one of the pods to send in questions if people have questions. And I did get a couple questions that I can throw at you if you're interested. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so one, and for whatever reason, the small Island country of New Zealand just keeps coming up on this podcast. This is like the, the third or fourth shout out to New Zealand tennis on this podcast. Really? Um, but one of my buddies, uh, Ben sent me this question excuse me, I'm just going through my phone here. He sent me two questions. One was serious. One was not, but give me a sec. Okay, well so, clearly we want the not serious one yeah yeah well to start um yeah here it is okay why do women's fist fist pump with a supinated grip why do most men fist pump with a neutral grip so that was is that the serious <laughs> one or is that the joke I, I i mean i think it's an interesting question actually now it's not a video pod but he's also sent videos of one of his mates like showing uh showing the actual <laughs> the use of said fist pumps um but just yeah. on that note, before I get to the serious question, have you ever seen, well, I'm sure you've seen Dominic Team fist pump? No, but I'm looking it up now. This is the weirdest, dude, his thumb is like on top of... Oh, but I muscle. was going to say, I was going to say a lot of girls do that. Really? Okay. That's, I think that's also... Wait, where is... Oh, he's... He's like, yeah. I mean... Oh, he's a little bit. Yeah, I'm seeing it. But I, I think, I've certainly seen, I feel like that a lot of girls do that as well, but... Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Most of the shots of Dominic Team fist pumping don't show his thumb, but there's a couple. Oh, but I see what you mean. It's a little unusual. But at, like any good academy at TSC, we do have a big segment on swearing in Spanish and fist pumping, just to make yep. sure that our kids both can do those equally. You know what I mean? But okay, yeah, here's course. Ben's real question, yep. which I think is a a, a smart question. Um, he says, 
how do you preserve preserve trust and belief between a player and a coach while addressing a mindset in a poach ma- match debrief? And he he said that's an af- afterwards whilst demanding more from the athlete. So I'm going to do my best to de- describe this, although it might not need describing. But um, after a match, the coach is talking to the athlete about just being demanding from, like, I guess, a mindset point of view, um, and how to how to appropriately do that without kind of shitting on the player. And Ben, if I'm getting that question wrong, then my bad, yo. Yeah, I, it's a tough one. I think it's a really good question. I think like the you know the more you can the more frequently you can solve that problem because of course it's not going to happen every time it's not like a learn it once and done type of skill but like the more frequently you can solve that problem i think you know the easier and the more easier and better your coaching becomes but i think it comes down to values yeah. essentially i i think you could almost leave it at that i mean i think it comes down to values slash beliefs um you know, mindsets, once again, we can get a whole discussion on how you define those words. I remember Louis talking to me, he's got a, he's got like a million different definitions for values, mindsets, beliefs, attitudes, rules, and all these things. But I think it comes down to values. And what I mean by that is, first of all, do they, I guess you could call this a growth mindset, but do they believe and understand that mindsets and mental skills are skills, they're not characteristics, and they're trainable? Right. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. if they believe that they are attributes of a person, then they will feel criticized. Right. right? If they believe that they, these are skills, but they can't be improved, then they will feel like shit. I suck. Right. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, what are their values with regards to feedback Mm -hmm. and, and constructive criticism? Because if they're, not receptive to that and i guess that maybe ties in with another value of like you know the the pursuit of excellence because if what they want to hear after a match is ah tough one you did good you tried hard that's i'm sorry it sucks if that's what they want to hear which i think is justified in certain situations if that's what they want to hear then they're not going to be open and welcoming to whatever feedback you have. So, and, yeah. and I'm assuming, and, I, and for the record, I'm assuming that the coach is, is not saying this right off, right off the bat, as soon as they walk off the court and, and they're not yeah. yelling at the kid and the kid's not crying. Like I'm assuming that the coach has done their due diligence to pick the right moment to have this conversation. I'm assuming that all that has been taken care of. Cause that's, I, I hope that goes without saying, but if we are assuming that this was the right moment, maybe they gave it some time, maybe it's the next day, whatever. If we're assuming that this is the right moment and the circumstances are correct, then I think, yeah, I think it comes down to, to to values mm-hmm. and and that's tough i mean like the values fundamentally we've talked about this before i think but like the values fundamentally a big part of those come from the parents right? i mean they're going to spend way more time with with the parents than they are with you generally speaking certainly up to a certain age um and so you know the values that are instilled um at a young age and and, and at home play a big role but i also think it's the values that you can establish within your tennis con- context with regards to growth mindset with regards to mental skills um, but yeah, I, I think it comes down to those beliefs about the type of feedback that you're giving. Yeah. And I would think just to jump in on that as well, um, hopefully that the coach and the player are certainly on the same page in terms of what the player's goals are. Um, and not even, I've talked a lot about this week with, with our staff too, but it's not even just what the player's goals are, but what the coach's goals are for that player as well. Right. Because I think like, what do you mean by that? Generally, I, I feel a player might have certain goals for sure. And I think sometimes one thing that doesn't get talked about, well, one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is like most high performance coaches aren't really doing it to make money. Like they're doing it because to some extent they love doing it and they want to help players. But within in, within that, like it's like it's important for the coach that a player is successful as well. Yes, it's the player's journey. And yes, it's about, I guess, the kid winning or losing. But like um, sometimes, sometimes I feel like players don't understand how much that stuff can mean to coaches if a player is successful. You know what I mean? And I, I don't feel like I'm articulating this well. I'm not articulating this this well, but it's like, and maybe ego plays a role in it too, but like, I I certainly care if my player wins or loses um, for their own sake, but also for my own well-being, like for my own mental health. It's like, what if, if, I'm, if I'm investing time in a player, like then I'm in, like I'm investing time in this. Like, I think it's important mm. that, you're successful. 
because um, I'm competitive too. So I, again, I don't think I'm, I'm explaining that well, but do you understand what I mean? Maybe you can clean that up for me. No, I understand what you mean. I mean, I think it's totally fair. I just, I, I struggle with, I think it's understandable, but I struggle with taking that approach because I think it is their journey. And I know you're not saying that it's not, I know you're, yeah, I know you're not saying it's not, but it is their journey. They're the ones playing. They're the ones coming to practice. They're the ones paying. Um, They're the ones with goals. And furthermore, and I've said this on another podcast, they have one career. I'm going to coach. If we talk serious, real coaching, I'm going to coach a few dozen players in my life. Right. Right. Like proper, you know, one-on-one involved personal, personal coaching. I'm going to coach a few dozen players in my life. They've got one career. Yeah. So there's a huge, it's not a power. Well, there is a power imbalance, but it's not a power imbalance. It's a, it's a, it's a meaning imbalance and there's a responsibility imbalance. This is their one shot. I've got, I'm going to coach other players. It's not, it's not the all end all for me. So I think we, as coaches, we have to take that into consideration. This by default means more to them than it does to us. And so we have a responsibility there. Um, I don't know. I've sure never I'm... always accurate though. I'm not sure that's always the case. Like I, I don't think the player always has higher aspirations than the coach does. That's a good point. No, you're right. That's a good but, point. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's, you, you certainly cleaned up what I was trying to say. And I, I didn't, I don't mean any of that sort of negatively, but going back to Ben's point now, it's like, well, if the coach and the player are on the same page with like what the player's goals are, or the coach's goals are for, for that player, then yeah, there, there's like almost monthly if not more there's going to be difficult conversations between there can be difficult conversations between a player and a coach right and yep. i think it's the coach's job to ensure that like going back to the value stuff that like you're really ensuring the values are there the vibe i'm getting from ben in this question is like and i could be wrong but like i feel like ben's asking when my player acts like an asshole throughout the majority of the match like how do i then address it then and it's like well one thing i had to say to one of my players this week is like it's, it's much more as much as i'm competitive and you're competitive it's much more important to me that you're a good person than you win tennis matches. Like yeah. that's way more important to me. And I know it sounds after school special yeah. stuff, but it's like mm-hmm. if with all of our athletes, like I feel like if my athlete and I don't align on that, then I'm not a good fit for that athlete. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um. So Ben, tell us where we went wrong and tell us uh, how, how wrong we were in trying to break down what your question was there. But uh, that's, um, I guess, part of it there. Anything else to add on that one? No, I think that's good. Um, he had one more, which I think is interesting, and I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. Are you ready for it? Yep. Um, parents who are coaches that seem to have more success coaching their own child than other players. Why? And I, I can't yeah. tell if he's messing with me by answering this question. Like, I don't know if he's like subtly taking the piss or what, but uh, we'll answer it anyway. Yeah, it's so funny because like I said to you, I've been doing a little side research project for my own benefit and thinking about coaches and which coaches I would say I've been most successful and things like that. And, and one of the things that I always say is like, if you're, if the best player you ever coached was your kid, I'm not that impressed, <laughs> which maybe is a bad <laughs> thing to say. I don't, I think in a lot of ways, coaching your own kid is harder, of course. And I'm, this is like, I wasn't coached by my dad and I don't have kids. So I'm completely uh, ill unqualified for this conversation, but I think that in a lot of ways, of course it's harder. But I think in a lot of ways, it's also easier. And I think, and and of course, I mean, there's so many so many pros out there on tour who are, who are being coached or were coached by their parents that it shows that um, that it does work a lot of the time. Um, of course, it fails a lot of the time as well. But mm-hmm. uh, so so yeah, I I always think it's interesting when uh, I guess the point that Ben was making is when this parent. What well, what exactly was the point? Was that the parents coach their kids? and have more success than other kids who are coached by real coaches? Is that the idea? I think his question was parents who are coaches, um, but those parents who are coaches seem to have more success coaching their own player than other players. Their own kids rather than yeah. other players. Yeah. And so, I mean, at face value, I would just jump in and say, like, well, I think generally the parent's going to care more. So, like, obviously, I care more about their own kid, right? So, like, whether that's true or not true, I think there's some inherent level of, like, some bias towards your own kid, and, like, maybe you're going to... Mm-hmm work harder than you might normally or maybe you give them more hours than you might normally but that's like i mean uh, that's the the very the easy answer there so i'm not sure if it gets more convoluted than that zach but well i i wasn't even going to go with care more although i think that's that's probably like that's likely true but i was going to go more time for sure like they can you know they can uh spend more time with them um just because it doesn't cost anything right it's free um and 
they can push them harder, right? Oh, they push can them be, harder. That's okay. That's actually an interesting point. I think they they can generally be more demanding um, than they could with someone else's kid, right? That's my well, that's, that's, yeah, very interesting. That's my that's my gut feeling. But I think I think the time and connections piece is probably big. You know, they they and that's the other thing too is this kid's parent knows about tennis. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. ostensibly, then they can make intelligent decisions about what tournaments to play and how much to train and all these things. Whereas the coach who's coaching someone else's kid, they're in control of the hours on court, but they may not make all the other tennis decisions. Right. Right. Cause the parents may be making those decisions. So ostensibly this kid has a parent who, 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 uh, who, you know, knows enough to make uh, the right decisions for that circumstance anyway. Um, so the planning is, is well done. Uh, they get more hours than others and they can be pushed harder. And like you said, maybe there's a level of bias as well. Yeah, well said. But it's an well, interesting one though, because it is, it's it's really interesting to see. Like, there's some, I mean, the people who have coached their kid, then their kid becomes really good, and they've barely coached anyone else who's good. And then the opposite. I mean, then then there's the people who are excellent coaches, and their kid is so so, mm-hmm. uh, usually because the kid doesn't care about tennis as much. But like, it's really interesting to study those those dynamics. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, that was it. That was uh, questions from our friends in New Zealand. Shout out New Zealand. Here we go. Yeah, well, if anyone wants to send any more in, um, yeah, feel free. Cool. Um, and just before we go, Zach, if I, if I could just clear one thing up, that would be great. Yep. Go for so, it. Uh, I'm not sure it was the last part of the pod before, but I went on a rant about WTA stuff um, and specifically yep. the statistics of the Australian Open final that recently happened. And I, I had the statistics from Craig O'Shaughnessy, who's one of the lead statisticians, uh, on both tours um, and everything else, one of the one of our kids' parents, who's an active uh, listener to the pod, which we really appreciate. Thanks, Greg. Um, he he came up to me and was like, "Hey, I think like I think you're wrong on your stats." I was like, "I was like, prove it, Greg." But sure enough, no. The next next day, he sent me the Australian Open statistics are different than Craig's statistics on the results of that Australian Open final. So just to be clear, I'm not sure who's right or who's wrong with these stats. And I'd have a very hard time believing that Craig being a statistician was that wrong on those stats. But what, what Greg sent me again, which is he's showing me the screenshot from the Australian Open site, um, is that Sebalenka actually ended up being about a plus 23 on the match, um, whereas uh, Rabikina was, ended up being around a plus uh, five or six in the match. So like those okay. numbers, if those are true, are just very, very different than the the massive minuses that um, Craig O'Shaughnessy had suggested. So yeah. I'm going to look into it, Greg, and appreciate you. He's on the case. On the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let us know what you find. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Great. Perfect. Thanks, Al. Well, Zach, thank you. That was the Gray Zone. See you.